All their creeds were an abomination. This is a, uh, a topic that uh, I actually came to, I think it was uh, coming up on two years ago. It was uh, February, 2020. And what I did was I was just talking to a friend and uh, he's like, Hey, um, are you interested in any gospel topics, suggestions or suggestions for uh, any gospel topics to study? And I said, sure. So he, he said, why don't you do a study on creeds and see where that takes you. So this is basically a culmination of that study uh, that uh, lasted me a couple of weeks just things that I looked into and scriptures that I read and things that I pondered and took to the Lord. And I want to start out by saying I have a testimony independent of any mortal that, uh, that God is real. I have a testimony independent of any mortal that Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of God. And he suffered the atonement so that we could be saved, we could be redeemed, and we could become sons of God. We could be adopted by Jesus Christ as his sons and daughters. <clears throat> I have a testimony independent of any mortal that Joseph Smith was a true servant of Jesus Christ that he was called of Jesus Christ to do a work. And, uh, and he demonstrated a lot of the fruits of a true servant and a true prophet, a true prophet, serum revelator that, uh, that the scriptures give us to, to weigh. And I have a testimony independent of any mortal that the book of Mormon is true and that the scriptures of the restoration in large measure are true records from a true source, a true prophet, um, a true servant of Jesus Christ. And that, that the things that we understand as being restored to Joseph Smith, uh, including priesthood and keys to him, uh, actually did happen. So I wanted to, to preface this meeting by that because, um, in my, my previous lessons, we've gone over, uh, a lot of, a lot of, uh, topics that, that have more light to them, <laughs> not to say that this one is darkness, but this one can get uncomfortable. So, uh, notwithstanding, I, uh, I seek the Lord in presenting it. Uh, and the spirit to, to be with me and to be with you, that we might be edified together and, uh, that the spirit might teach you things that, uh, that you need to receive. So we will get started here. Okay. So. <clears throat> Some of the things that we're going to go over in this presentation are, you know, are, uh, are creeds in and of themselves good? Uh, are they evil? Are they neutral? Is it a mix of all of them? Um, 
you know, what does a creed look like? How do we define a creed? Um, what does the Lord say about creeds? What does, what did Joseph Smith teach about creeds? And, and, uh, lastly, what creeds do we recognize among ourselves? First, from Jesus Christ to Joseph Smith. Uh, in Joseph Smith history, in his account of the first vision, we read him saying, My object in going to inquire of the Lord was to know which of all the sects was right, that I might know which to join. No sooner, therefore, did I get possession of myself so as to be able to speak than I asked the personages who stood above me in the light which of all the sects was right. For at this time, it had never entered into my heart that all were wrong, in which I should join. I was answered that I must join none of them, for they were all wrong. And the personage who addressed me said that all their creeds were an abomination in his sight, that those professors were all corrupt, that they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They teach for doctrines the commandments of men, having a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. So what is a creed? Uh, as I was starting my study um, almost two years ago, I just started at, okay, what does, uh, what do the dictionaries of our day uh, say about it? <clears throat> and what, uh, what came up was from Miriam Webster a brief authoritative formula of religious belief, um, a set of fundamental beliefs, also a guiding principle from Merriam-Webster's Learner's Dictionary, a statement of the basic beliefs of a religion, uh, i.e. the religion's creed or people of different races and, re and creeds, i.e. religions. Next, an idea or set of beliefs that guides the actions of a person or group like a political creed and like we just read a religious creed also. Some synonyms are credo, doctrine, dogma, gospel, ideology, philosophy, or testament. So early, some early creeds in Christianity, some key, key points. And just as a disclaimer, after I went to, uh, you know, some some dictionaries of our day, naturally I went to Wikipedia just to see what what was on there. So many of the parts of this uh, initial presentation come from there. So you know, take that for what it's worth, with however with however much salt you want, but uh, but that's where this comes from. So. <clears throat> Some key points. The word creed is particularly used for a, for a concise statement, which is recited as part of liturgy, which we're going to get into what liturgy means. The term is anglicized from the Latin credo, I believe. Some longer statements of faith in the Protestant tradition are instead called confessions of faith, which if you're LDS and that sounds like something that you recognize, we're going to get into that. <clears throat> Doctrinal statements may include positions on lectionary and translation translations of the Bible. The, ther the term creed is sometimes extended to comparable concepts in non-Christian theologies. Thus, the Islamic concept of akidah, literally 
bond or tie or not is often rendered as creed. Some Christian creeds, uh, first of all, they, they start with the old Roman creed. It's an earlier and shorter version of the Apostles' Creed. It was based on the second century rule of faith and the interrogatory declaration, sorry, interrogatory declaration of faith for those receiving baptism or baptismal interview questions. The Apostles' Creed is widely used by most Christian denominations for both liturgical and catechetical purposes. Now, liturgy. The customer, customary public worship performed by a religious group. As a religious phenomenon, liturgy represents a communal, communal response to and participation in the sacred through activity reflecting praise, thanksgiving, supplication, or repentance. It forms a basis for establishing a relationship with a divine agency as well as with other partic participants in the liturgy. So we can consider that... Um, well, let me read this next part and then uh, further define it in our terms. Technically speaking, liturgy forms a subset of ritual. The word liturgy, sometimes equated in English as service, refers to a formal ritual which may or may not be elaborate, enacted by those who understand themselves to be participating in an action with the divine. So just as we consider this, Liturgy is, you know, uh, for those of the LDS uh, persuasion, it's church service. It's uh, temple service. These things can be considered as, as liturgies, as LDS liturgies. So one thing that I will ask you to do as we proceed is uh, check in with what the spirit brings to mind and, and take note of it. If as we're going through, you read something on the screen or you hear me say something and the spirit makes a connection for you, take note of that connection. We'll see in, uh, in a couple minutes if we made the same connections and, uh, and, uh, and we'll go from there. <clears throat> So liturgy continued the etymology of liturgy. And uh, before I continue, I'll just let you know at the outset, we're kind of going down a little rabbit hole uh, to find out all that we can so that we can understand what a creed is. And, and in doing so, we have to understand what liturgy is. We have to understand what uh, catechism is. <clears throat> and uh, so, so that's why we're going through this as as uh, Dustin Grady mentioned in his in his uh, presentation last week, we have to understand. He, he was talking about reading and studying the scriptures, and if we're going to understand what the scriptures mean, we have to understand certain definitions, how certain words are used, um, and we have to have a certain framework and a foundation of uh, of ling uh, linguistic understanding. So that we can, when a word is said, we can, we can make connections or the spirit can make connections for us so that, so that we get, we get full, a more full understanding. <clears throat> Thanks for letting me go through that. <laughs> Etymology. So there's some curious, uh, 
comparisons here. So the word liturgy is derived from the technical term in ancient Greek, uh, liturgia, which literally means work for the people. Not that, uh, I should say a work for the people, uh, just to give it better context. Um, which literally means a work for the people is a literal translation of the two words litos ergos or public service. In origin, it signified the often expensive offerings wealthy Greeks made in service to the people and thus to the polis and the state. So that may sound outside of our subject, but ask the Lord to make some, some connections for you and, uh, and see what he gives you. Through the liturgia, the rich carried a financial burden and were correspondingly rewarded with honors and prestige. The liturgia were assigned by the polis, the state, and the Roman Empire, and became obligatory in the course of the third century AD. The performance of such supported the patrons standing among the elite at, uh, and the popular, uh, I should say populace at large. <clears throat> the holder of the Hellenic, uh, the Hellenic liturgia was not taxed a specific sum, but was entrusted with a particular ritual, which could be performed with greater or lesser, lesser magnificence. Continuing, the chief sphere remained of that uh, civic religion embodied in the festivals. And my Finley denotes in uh, Demosthenes' day, there were at least 97 liturgical appointments in Athens for the festivals, rising to 118 in a quadrennial or panathenaic year. However, groups of rich citizens were assigned to pay for expenses such as uh, civic amenities and even payment of warships. Eventually, under the Roman Empire, such obligations known as munera devolved into a competitive and ruinously expensive burden that was avoided when possible. These included a wide range of expenses having to do with civic infrastructure and amenities and imperial obligations such as highway, bridge, and aqueduct repair, supply of various raw materials, breaking, uh, bread baking for troops in transit, just to name a few. Okay, so did the, did the spear bring anything to mind? Uh, did it make any connections for you, especially as we read those bold and underlined portions? Uh, those are, <laughs> I underlined and, and bolded those for a reason. So we'll see if you made the same connections that I did as I was reading through that. So as we go through here, the rich carried right here, the rich carried a financial burden and were correspondingly rewarded with honors and prestige. So we can tie this to us in the church as a status symbol, being a quote unquote full tithe payer to the church and, uh, you know, associated callings. So uh, regardless of your experience in the church, how long you've been in the church, uh, you know that one needs to do certain things in order to have certain callings. Um, if I was not a full tithe payer, I probably wouldn't be called to, uh, to be an elders quorum president or a bishop or in a bishopric. Um, so 
just consider that. Next, the performance of such supported the patron's standing among the elite and the popular at large. Okay, maybe it is supposed to be the popular at large. So instead of populace. So, you know, same as above. That's what came to mind is that, uh, you know, doing these things, making these offerings or these sacrifices or paying, uh, making these payments, it, it, uh, it, it contributed to your standing in, in the, not only in the society, but also in the primitive church. And as, uh, you know, as we see, we can certainly make some connections with that in our day. Next, the holder of the Hellenic liturgia was not taxed a specific sum, but was entrusted with a particular ritual, which could be performed with greater or lesser magnificence. So tithing is a requirement to worship in temples. If you're not a full tithe payer, you're not going to be holding a temple recommend and you're not going to be let in at the door of the temple. Um, and such higher ordinances, i.e. washing of the feet or the second anointing uh, for those invited by the brethren, I will let you do your own deep dive on that subject. Next, uh, paying for expenses such as civic amenities. Tithing goes to meeting houses, goes to temples, goes to ward budgets, goes to humanitarian donations on behalf of the church. So making these also, it gives one the, the notion of, well, I'm contributing to the, um, I'm contributing to the church. I'm contributing to the kingdom of God. Um, all of these things, these buildings are able to be maintained because I made my donation in, uh, in addition to, you know, all of the other donations being made by, uh, by ward stake, uh, you know, members of the church in general. Con uh, continuing, these included a wide range of expenses having to do with civ civic infrastructure and amenities or church real estate, church literature production, church employees, etc., And imperial obligations such as highway, bridge, and aqueduct repair, same as above, supply of various raw materials, bread baking for troops in transit, uh, or missionary funds that uh, all of these things on a tithing slip in the church, you can, you can donate to whatever you want to, um, to the missionary fund. Uh, you can sponsor a missionary. You can send it to fast offerings. You can send it to, um, you know, any number of different things that, uh, that contribute to the church. And these are just to name a few. Okay, so frequently in Christianity, the liturgy, uh, liturgy in Christianity, frequently a distinguish, uh, sorry, a distinction is made between liturgical and non-liturgical churches based on how elaborate or antiquated the worship. In this usage, churches whose services are unscripted or improvised are called non-liturgical. Others object to this usage, arguing that this terminology obscures the universality of public worship as a religious phenomenon. Thus. Even the open or waiting worship of Quakers is liturgical, since the waiting itself until the Holy Spirit moves individuals to speak is a prescribed form of Quaker worship, sometimes referred to as the liturgy of silence. 
typically in Christianity. However, the term, quote unquote, the liturgy normally refers to a standardized order of events observed during a religious service, be it a sacramental service or a service of public prayer. Usually the former is the referent. In the ancient tradition, sacramental liturgy especially is the participation of the people in the work of God, which is primarily the saving work of Jesus Christ. In this liturgy, Christ continues the work of redemption. So going back, liturgy is essentially no more or less than our church service. Uh, so, you know, in our church tradition, we have, um, we have liturgy, just like Catholics do, just like Protestants do. Um, you name it. It's, uh, that's our form of liturgy is, you know, opening prayer or opening song, opening prayer, uh, you know, bishopric member gets up, makes announcements, sacrament meeting, so on and so forth. Continued, the term liturgy literally in Greek means work for the people, but a better translation is public service or public work, as we mentioned earlier. As made clear from the, from the origin of the term as described above, the early, the early Christians adopted the word to describe their principal act of worship, the Sunday service, referred to by various terms, including Holy Eucharist, Holy Communion, Mass, or Divine Liturgy which they considered to be a sacrifice. This service, now, just on, as I read that, which they considered a sacrifice, um, I remember even saying it myself uh, and hearing others say it, that, you know, the when we had uh, three hours of church, we would say, yeah, like we're going to three hours of church and others are going to for half an hour, an hour, and, you know, that's a sacrifice for us and we're happy to make it. So we, we fall into this category that, uh, we can, we consider our liturgy, uh, also to be a sacrifice. Continuing this service liturgy or ministry from the Latin ministerium is a duty for Christians as a priestly people by their baptism into Christ and participation in his high priestly ministry. It also, it is also God's ministry or service to the worshipers as a reciprocal service. Uh, sorry, it is a reciprocal service. As such, many Christian churches designate one person who participates in the worship service as the liturgist. The liturgist may read announcements, scriptures, and calls to worship while the minister preaches the sermon, offers prayers, and blesses sacraments. The liturgist may be either an ordained minister or a layman. The entire congregation participates in and offers the liturgy to God. So hopefully as we're reading through this, you are able to see the overlap between what Wikipedia recognizes as creeds, liturgy, um, and we'll get to, to catechism. But, you know, independent of, of the LDS tradition, they're just saying things as they go, but coming from an LDS tradition, we can plug ourselves into that and see where the overlaps are. We can see, you know, we follow a lot of the same, uh, a lot of the same patterns. I use a lot of the same words. Um, yeah. So hopefully you can, you can notice that. 
Now, next, catechesis. Catechesis, or instruction by word of mouth, generally instruction, is basic Christian religious education for children and adults. It started as education of converts to Christianity, but as the religion became institutionalized, catechesis was used for education of members who had been baptized as infants. As defined in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 5, quoting Pope John Paul's uh, Pope John Paul II's apostolic exhortation, uh, you get the rest. <laughs> Catechesis is an education in the faith of children, young people, and adults, which includes especially the teaching of Christian doctrine imparted, generally speaking, in an organic and systematic way, with a view to initiating the hearers into the fullness of Christian life. So as we're reading that, I mean, when I, when I read that two years ago, I was like, that sounds a lot like primary. sounds a lot like what we do as missionaries. Um, it sounds like Sunday school, um, you know, uh, relief society, um, different priesthood quorums, it, it looks like it matches up directly. And so we, we have our own, even if we don't call it that, we have our own uh, catechism or uh, catechesis. And that is used for the bringing people into understanding with the religion that we live. In the Catholic Church, catechist is a term used of anyone engaged in religious religious formation and education from the bishop to the lay ecclesi uh, ecclesial ministers and clergy to volunteers at the local level. The primary catechists for children are their parents or communities, which often we mentioned that uh, in the LDS church that, that we mean to have parents be the one teaching their children. Uh, they're, they're the initial primary teachers. Um, it shouldn't be something that is just pawned off on primary teachers, nursery leaders, um, what have you. The teaching should start at home. And that, that is a parallel between us. In ecclesiology, the uh, catechumen, one being instructed... <clears throat> Uh, is a person receiving instruction from a catechist in the principles of the Christian religion with a view to baptism. Also, going back, this sounds exactly like what uh, what we do as missionaries, teaching the principles of the gospel and putting it in such a way that the learner can understand simply um, and go through methodically to to receive what the beliefs are, to understand what the beliefs are, and to you know, to, to pray and get a, get a witness of those. Continuing the title and practice is most often used by Anglican, Lutheran, Methodist, Orthodox, Reformed, Presbyterian, and Roman Catholic Christians, ecumenical organizations, such as the North American association for the catechumenate are helping to across several denominations, quote unquote, shape ministries with adult seekers 
involving an extended time of faith formation and a meaningful experience of adult baptism at Easter. Hopefully you can, you can see the, the overlaps. Um, I keep wanting to, to reiterate them because again, as I was reading through this, I'm like, holy cow, I'm reading my own religion here, <laughs> my own upbringing, my own uh, religious tradition. <clears throat> so, um, you know, put, uh, put some comments in the chats. looks like a lot of people are already, but, um, yeah, if, uh, if you want to say amen, go ahead and say it. <laughs> okay, so we'll get into some examples of creeds here. First, the Old Roman symbol or Old Roman creed. According to the Oxford Dic Dictionary of the Christian Church, the first text attesting it is a letter to Pope Julius I in 340 or 341. Now, there's something interesting with that that we'll illustrate here in a second. But here's what the creed is. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, and in Christ Jesus, his only Son, our Lord, who was born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, who under Pontius Pilate was crucified and buried on the third day, rose again from the dead, ascended to heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father. Hence, he will come to judge the living and the dead. And in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, the remission of sins, the resurrection of the flesh, the life everlasting. So as you read that, does that sound like anything in your LDS tradition? Does that sound familiar at all? What's interesting to me is as it says, the first text attesting it is a letter to Pope Julius. So in other words, this came from a letter from one, uh, from one person to another, uh, one person to Pope Julius, and later it was introduced as canon and doctrine. So I thought it was a com an interesting comparison from the original expression um, to ex establish doctrine, just as the Articles of Faith in the Wentworth letter from Joseph Smith were initially just an expression of this is what we believe. I'm just letting you know, I'm giving you a rundown. Um, however, later it became canon, um, you know, after, after Joseph's, uh, after his death, it became canon. So, you know, whether it was his intention that that become canon, uh, that's left to the, uh, left to the, the reader. Okay, next, the Apostles' Creed. Sometimes titled the Apostolic Creed or the symbol of the Apostles is an early statement of Christian belief. A creed or quote-unquote symbol, not in the sense that the word symbol has in modern English, but the, in the original meaning of the word derived from the Latin symbolum, sign, token, uh, from Greek, token for identification by comparing with its counterpart. Um, or to throw together, compare. It thus says nothing explicitly about, nor does it address many other theological questions which became objects of dispute centuries later. And that objects of dispute was interesting to me 
the third Nephi 11, 28 through 30, which we're going to go over that scripture a little bit later. Here's the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now, within these two, and I'll let you see these two right here. I put them side by side so you could uh, compare. There's not a lot that's different between the two. Um, you know, a little added here, a little clarified there, but in uh, in most cases, it's you know they're they're essentially saying this the same thing. And as Latter Day Saints, there's probably not a lot in here with which we would disagree, if anything. Um, even where it says, "I believe in the Holy Church" or in the Apostles' Creed, the Holy Catholic Church. We may not agree that we believe in the Catholic Church, but we say ourselves, I believe in, and I have a witness and testimony that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the only true church upon the face of the earth. So, you know, if we can just plug in our own in that we have our own creed. Okay, the Apostles' Creed, whose present form is similar to the baptismal creed used in Rome in the 3rd and 4th centuries, actually developed from questions addressed to those seeking baptism. The Catholic Church still today uses an interrogative form of it in the rite of baptism, both for children and adults. In the official English translation in 1974, the minister of baptism asks, do you believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? Do you believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was born of the Virgin Mary, was crucified, died, and was buried, rose from the dead, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father? Do you believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting? To each question, the catechumen or in the case of an infant, the parents and sponsors, uh, godparents, in his or her place answers, I do. Then the celebrant says, this is our faith. This is the faith of the church. We are proud to profess it in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And all respond, amen. Now, the it, it's, it's a one-to-one. -one. I don't even need to... <laughs> to to break that down in terms of, you know, we have in the church baptismal questions. When somebody is being taught, when a child at eight is, uh, is graduating from junior primary, they're, they're given these questions, they're asked these questions. 
And based on the response to those questions, they qualify for uh, they qualify for baptism and in this case into the church. So even though they're, they're coming to primary, they're, um, you know, in my case, I was born and raised in the church. So you, you're in the church, but now when you answer these questions affirmatively and you're able to be baptized, you become part of the church. So become part of that faith. Now the Nicene creed. Now, this is the one as Latter-day Saints that we probably hear most about, and we hear most about it in conjunction with the Trinity, with the notion of the Trinity. The Nicene Creed is a statement of belief widely used in Christian liturgy. It was originally adopted by the First Council of Nicaea in 325. In 381, it was amended at the First Council of Constantinople, and the amended form is referred to as the Nicene or Niceno-Constantinopolitan uh, Creed. It defines Nicene Christianity. The church use that the churches use this profession of faith with the verbs in the original plural "we believe," but the churches convert those verbs to the singular "I believe." The Nicene Creed is also part of the profession of faith required of those undertaking important functions within the Catholic Church. And as you can see right here, temple recommend questions. You can tie that to that. Now, the history of these, uh, these creeds in general, and then specifically to the Ni Ni Nicene Creed. The actual purpose of a creed is to provide a doctrinal statement of correct belief or orthodoxy. The creeds of Christianity have been drawn up at times of conflict about doctrine. Acceptance or rejection of a creed serves to distinguish believers and deniers of particular doctrines. Take note of that. I'll read that again. Acceptance or rejection of a creed served to distinguish believers and deniers of particular doctrines. For that reason, a creed was called in Greek, uh, symbolon, which originally meant half of a broken object, which when fitted with the other half, verified the bearer's identity. The Greek word passed through Latin symbolon, uh, symbolum into English symbol, which only later took on the meaning of an outward sign of something, an outward sign of an inner commitment, uh, we often say in the church. The Nicene Creed was adopted to resolve the Arian controversy, whose leader, Arius, a clergyman of Alexandria, objected to Alexander's, the bishop at the time, apparent carelessness in blurring the distinction of nature between the Father and the Son by his emphasis on eternal generation. In reply, Alexander accused Arius of denying the divinity of the Son and also being too, quote-unquote, Jewish and, quote-unquote, Greek in his thought. Alexander and his supporters created the Nicene Creed to clarify the key tenets of the Christian faith in response to the widespread adoption of Arius's doctrine, uh, adoption of Arius's doctrine, which was henceforth marked as heresy. So in our current terms, we can see this as as setting up of uh, 
almost like battle lines where you're not part of us. You're part of something else. And if you're not part of us, you're against us. And, you know, the, the last sentence, which was henceforth marked as heresy, uh, people were executed for heresy and, uh, and, you know, burnt at the stake and drawn and quartered. So, you know, there, this is, this is important for us to understand because if this is something that we are approaching, or if this is something that we're practicing in the, the setting up of believers or deniers of particular doctrines, and, and then we're setting up, uh, you know, dividing lines of that, we, we begin to understand where the Lord has a problem with creeds. Okay. The Nicene Creed, here it is. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and all, and of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. Through him, all things were made for us men and for our salvation. He came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He was born of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in fulfillment of the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated on the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from Father, uh, from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. That's what we say, too. Uh, well, not Catholic, but you you know what I mean. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We say that also. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. So again, we can see here in the we believe, uh, we see parallels to our own articles of faith, uh, wherein you know, 13 of them or 12 of them and one we claim, um, we have canonized in our beliefs and, uh, and what we profess before the world. <clears throat> now, I just want to iterate uh, from the beginning. As, as we've gone through all of this, this is again tying to what the Lord has to say about creeds. Again, my object in going to the Lord, and remember, Joseph Smith is not simply just going to look for a church to join. He is pleading with the Lord to ask, how might I obtain salvation? Because I want to be saved. And in his understanding, coming to be saved included being part of a particular church. 
And because there were so many churches, he wanted to know which one had the ability to offer him salvation. So that's why he was looking for a church to join, not simply to, uh, to join a party. My object in going to inquire of the Lord was to know which of all the sects was right that I might know which to join. No sooner, therefore, did I get possession of myself so as to be able to speak that I asked the personages who stood above me in the light which of all the sects was right. For at this time, it had never entered into my heart that all were wrong and which I should join. I was answered that I must join none of them for they were all wrong. And the personage who addressed me said, and this is Jesus Christ who's, who's addressing him, said that all their creeds were an abomination in his sight, that those professors were all corrupt, that they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They teach for doctrines, the commandments of men having a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. This is Another within our canon that speaks of, uh, mentions creeds. And given its context, this should, this should really uh, draw our attention. DNC 123 verse 7. It is an imperative, imperative duty that we owe to God, to angels, with whom we shall be brought to stand, and also to ourselves, to our wives and children who have been made to bow down with grief, sorrow, and care under the most damning hand of murder, tyranny, and oppression, supported and urged on and upheld by the influence of that spirit, which hath so strongly riveted the, uh, the creeds of the fathers who have inherited lives upon the hearts of the children and filled the world with confusion and has been growing stronger and stronger and is now the very mainspring of all corruption. And the whole earth groans under the weight of its iniquity. Now, we as Latter-day Saints, we might say to ourselves, well, yeah, this doesn't apply to us, though. This applies to everybody and all those religions and those creeds outside of the LDS church, because we're the only true and living church on the face of the earth, as was said in 1830. <laughs> 1831. Um, we'll look up the reference in the, uh, in the discussion, but, um, you know, just, just to reiterate the, uh, the bolded point in this verse supported, uh, the damning hand of murder, tyranny, and oppression supported and urged on and upheld by the influence of that spirit, that spirit, the spirit of Lucifer, which hath so strongly riveted the creeds of the fathers who have inherited lies upon the hearts of the children. So we can begin to see who is inspiring these creeds and who's inspiring the actions that are related to these creeds. In other words, murder, tyranny, and oppression. You know, we have to ask ourselves as Latter-day Saints, okay, as I, as I begin to see the parallels between the two, uh, you know, as we've gone through up until this point, 
maybe I need to take closer notice to, to these things in my own tradition, to these things in my own religion and my own expression towards others. All right. We're going to go through uh, what Joseph Smith had to say on creeds, uh, traditions, and truth. And right here, I just want to, again, give you some details. So the invitation that I received from the friend in doing this, uh, this gospel study was to, to look into what creeds were, how they manifested themselves in old times, how they manifested themselves in the times of Joseph Smith and what he said about them and how they manifest in our times. And so that's why we're going through this. So you can see the parallels between and the development of these creeds and the inclusion of them, even within our own, um, our own traditions, our own traditions as Latter-day Saints in the church that we claim is the only true church on the face of the earth. Joseph Smith, this is from Times and Season, Times and Seasons, February 1840. Mormonism is truth, and every man who embraces it feels himself at liberty to embrace every truth. Consequently, the shackles of superstition, bigotry, ignorance, and priestcraft fall at once from his neck, and his eyes are opened to see the truth, and truth greatly prevails over priestcraft. Mormonism is truth. In other words, the doctrine of the Latter-day Saints is truth. The first and fundamental principle of our holy religion is that we believe that we have a right to embrace all and every item of truth <clears throat> without limitation or without being circumscribed or prohibited by the creeds or superstitions, uh, superstitious notions of men or by the do dominations of one another when that truth is clearly demonstrated to our minds and we have the highest degree of evidence of the same. So what is he saying here? Joseph Smith is saying that we as Mormons or Latter-day Saints need to be, uh, at least in his mind, our religion was based on the notion of continually receiving light and truth that we have been given, but there is more to receive. And even in those things that we've been given, do we fully understand everything? Now, I, I would propose that there are certain things that, that can be pretty closely nailed down. There are, there are, uh, scriptures in abundance that, that tie to certain principles, especially the doctrine of Christ that, you know, we can, we can move forward with, without thinking, without taking in, um, um, agnostic stand where we're like, no, I just, I don't know anything. I, I can't know everything. So therefore I'm, you know, I'm not going to take any stances on, on anything. I don't think we have to do that. Um, but at the same time, 
we also have to understand and realize that the Lord can correct us at any time. He can add to what we have and he can clarify what we have. And, you know, I might have 80% of something, but if he gives me an extra 10%, it might help me to see in a more clear way the, the 80% that I already have. Next. I stated, this is History of the Church, Volume 5, page 215. I stated that the most prominent difference in sentiment between the Latter-day Saints and sectarians was that the latter, the sectarians, were all circumscri circumscribed by some peculiar creed which deprived its members the privilege of believing anything not contained therein, whereas the Latter-day Saints are ready to believe all true principles that exist as they are made manifest from time to time. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I think this extends further than just the notion of the continuing restoration pertains to, you know, adding some, uh, you know, the church can be streamlined in this way. Um, you know, we can do this thing to be more effective. Uh, it's what I believe that he is saying here is that doctrinal understanding and principles of how the eternities work can and ought to be continued. That we continue in light and truth and we, for sure, we, we, we seek after greater light and knowledge. Next, I, I cannot believe in any of the creeds of the different denominations because they all have some things in them I cannot subscribe to, though all of them have some truth. I want to come up in the presence of God and learn all things, but the creeds set up stakes and say, hitherto shalt thou come and no further, which I cannot subscribe to. Again, it's this notion of greater... <clears throat> greater light and knowledge that is available from the Lord. And, and we seek after these things, essentially. Next, I say to all those who are disposed to set up stakes for the Almighty, you will come short of the glory of God. To become a joint heir of the heirship of the Son one must put away all his false traditions. So was he just talking to those outside the church? Or is it possible that he's also speaking to those within the church who yet set up stakes, who yet put up boundaries? And that's what it means to set up stakes, put up boundaries to what is true and what is not true. And just for, uh, for clarification, just because he contends against putting up boundaries does not mean that God does not have boundaries. As we're talking about creeds and traditions, we're talking about those false traditions and those false stakes, those false boundaries that are put up by men 
because men refuse to believe any further and they set up stakes or they put up boundaries to close themselves in and say, this is what is true. You can give me, give me no more. Um, and anything more that you have to offer me is patently false doctrine. Next, the great thing for us to know is to comprehend what God did institute before the foundation of the world, which is mentioned in Ether 4, verses 14 and 15. And who knows it? It is the constitutional disposition of mankind to set up stakes and set bounds to the works and ways of the Almighty. That which hath been hid from before the foundation of the world is revealed to babes and sucklings in the last days. And those, uh, those scripture references, uh, Ether and Third uh, Nephi 11, 37 and 38, I added those in. So those are mine. Next, when men open their lips against the truth, they do not injure me, but injure themselves. When things that are of the greatest importance are passed over by weak-minded men without even a thought, I want to see truth in all its bearings and hug it to my bosom. I believe all that God ever revealed, and I never hear of a man being damned for believing too much, but they are damned for unbelief. Now, I will give it as my opinion that we are not to believe in false doctrine because if we do believe false doctrine, then there is a damnation with that. So when he says, I never hear of a man being damned for believing too much, it's my opinion that he's talking about all the things that God has to reveal. I never hear of a man being damned for believing too much truth, but they're damned for unbelief. When we set up stakes and boundaries as to, no, that thing cannot be true because of this and this and this and this in my tradition. Instead of saying, okay, let me take my traditions and put them to the side just for a second and go before the Lord with this, this new truth and ask him, Heavenly Father, is this true? Heavenly Father, is this false? Heavenly Father, is, if this is true, please help me to understand it. And not only that, but to either reconcile it with my current beliefs, or if this is true and one of my current beliefs that conflicts with it is false, I would rather give up that false belief and receive this new thing, which is true. And, you know, I want to, let me see here. Go back. Uh, let's see here. I want to go back to one of these. Da -da -da. That's uh, where he, ah, right here. Okay. Where he says, every man who embraces it, truth, feels himself at liberty to embrace every truth. Consequently, the shackles of superstition, bigotry, ignorance, and priestcraft fall at once from his neck. 
Now I want to just mention this just to illustrate my own experience. So I started looking into things or, or, or seeking greater light and knowledge uh, in earnest in, in 2018. And, and as I did that, and as I continued and I started to see those conflicts, but nevertheless, the, these new things that I was believing or that I was receiving, they would not go away. They just felt so right. They, they felt light. Um, they exuded truth. And so I had to figure out why do these things that contradict my previously held beliefs, why are they, why are they standing on their own and the spirit is bearing witness of them? And, you know, fast forward, I, I said a statement and I may have said this in, in, uh, in times past, but I said something to the Lord and publicly that I was going, I did not want to believe anything that I had only received a testimony of through, um, through man. If it was something that I had heard from man and I just believed it on its face, I wanted to go through my entire belief system with the Lord and say, Heavenly Father, is this thing true? Or is this thing false and I need to give it up? And I publicly said, I want the Lord to prune my shrub, so to speak, and to graft in all that is true and to prune away all that is false. And I don't want to believe in anything that I have not taken to the Lord and received a spiritual witness from him. Now you'll hearken back to the beginning of this uh of this presentation. And I specifically said that I believe in God, in Jesus Christ, in Joseph Smith as a true servant, as the book of Mormon, as a true book of scripture and as aspects of the restoration happening because I've received spiritual witnesses of them. I have them independent of any mortal on earth, any teacher of it, um, even if somebody taught it to me, I do not believe it because they taught it. I believe it because I took it to the Lord and he bore witness by the power of the Holy ghost that that thing was true. And that's why I believe it. And if we believe anything that does not pass that test, then we need to set it on the altar before the Lord and say, Heavenly father, it might be difficult. It might be uncomfortable but I am willing to believe all truth. And if you will take this away from me and replace it with truth, I will be glad. I will accept it. Okay. Now this is just quoting some, uh, some things from Joseph. It, it, uh, it echoes something that we've already read, but it, it, uh, it adds some extra flavor. So, um, this was just an anonymous, an anonymous comment, uh, from an online forum. Uh, just as I was doing my study, I found this comment and I thought that it was, it was really spectacular. 
Most discussions of the condemnation of creeds in the 1838 account don't consider Joseph Smith's own explanations. The problem is not falsity. And as we mentioned earlier, there are many things in these creeds, you know, the old Roman creed, uh, the apostolic creed or the apostles creed, even the Nicene creed, many things that are true. So it's not that those things are false necessarily. They may have some things that are false within them, as Joseph said. Um, and we're going to read that here. But uh, since he acknowledged that all of them have some truth and elsewhere commented that it don't prove that a man is not a good man because he believes false doctrine. That in words of Joseph Smith. But rather... Creeds set up stakes and say, hitherto thou shalt come and no further, which I cannot subscribe to. He stated, Joseph, that the most prominent difference in sentiment between the Latter-day Saints and sectarians was that the latter were all circumscribed by some particular creed, which deprived its members of the privilege of believing anything not contained therein. Whereas the Latter-day Saints have no creed. Joseph Smith said the Latter-day Saints have no creed, but are ready to believe all true principles that exist as they are made manifest from time to time. The problem with creeds is their restrictive function rather than content. They declare what to think and close the door to further light and knowledge. And if the Lord is trying to help us to to grow in light and knowledge, to come unto him. You know, we don't, we do not become like him, like Jesus Christ, like father, like mother, by staying in a certain frame of mind. We do not come to a certain spot and camp there and then say, well, I've received all of my necessary ordinances. And now I'm just going to do uh, my best. I'm going to stay within the church. I'm going to love my neighbor. I'm going to serve people and wait for my turn to die and walk through the gates of heaven into the celestial kingdom because I've done all of my ordinances and I've remained faithful. <clears throat> That's not how we become like Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ went from grace to grace and grew in his life. Notwithstanding who he was, he yet had to receive light and knowledge upon light and knowledge from his birth until uh, his ministry and his death the same way that we do. And he did it. He received greater light and knowledge and ascension by obedience to the Father in the new and everlasting covenant, receiving commandments from him, following all of those commandments, and in doing so, he ascended. And he became, he rose to the level in his mortal life, he rose to that part where he could perform the atonement. And do so with faith in the Father that he would not fail. So if we are going to become like them, 
we have to follow the same pattern and we cannot box ourselves into boundaries saying, this is all that I believe. I will add nothing to it. All right. So notwithstanding, Joseph just said that the Latter-day Saints do not have any creeds. Uh, he said that during his life. And he said that, in my opinion, as uh, more of an intention of we ought not to have any creeds as Latter-day Saints. So what are our um, creeds? So we've mentioned them a few times, got the articles of faith. We have 13 codified and canonized statements of belief. And to my question earlier, did Joseph intend for these to become doctrine? Based on the last quote, he would not have made these uh, doctrine. He would not have made these canon um, because in doing so, they were made a creed. Are the baptismal questions creeds? Uh, there's six that are actually broken into 14. I went through them earlier. Uh, questions to allow or disallow baptism. Now, as we consider that, let's go to Mosiah 18, 8 through 10. We'll see if this qualifies as a creed or qualifies as just uh, what the Lord intends for, for those who are seeking baptism. And it came to pass that he said unto them, Behold, here are the waters of Mormon, for so were they called. For thus were they called. And now, as ye are desirous to come into the fold of God, and to be called his people, and are willing to bear one another's burdens, that they may be light, yea, and are willing to mourn with those that mourn, Yea, and comfort those that stand in need of comfort and to stand as witnesses of God at all times and in all things and in all places that ye may be in, even until death, that ye may be redeemed of God and be numbered with those of the first resurrection, that ye may have eternal life. Now I say unto you, if this be the desire of your hearts, what have you against being baptized in the name of the Lord as a witness before him that ye have entered into a covenant with him? that you will serve him and keep his commandments that he may pour out his spirit more abundantly upon you. Let's look at some of the baptismal questions. Okay. Do you believe that God is our eternal father? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is a son of God and the savior and redeemer of the world? not necessarily bad things to believe in or, or ask like somebody should believe in father and, uh, in Jesus Christ, if they're going to be baptized, do you believe that the church and gospel of Jesus Christ have been restored through the prophet Joseph Smith? Do you believe that the current church president is a prophet of God? What does this mean to you? Now we begin to deviate. Nothing in here. Alma didn't ask them, you know, do you believe that I am a true servant or that I've been called of God? 
do you have a testimony that I'm called of God? He didn't ask that. So at once we appear to have a, uh, something that may be diverting our, um, our gaze, our focus and putting it where it ought not to be. What does it mean to you to repent? Do you feel that you have repented of your past transgressions? Here, let's open up these two. Section 20, verse 37. And again, by way of commandment to the church concerning the manner of baptism, all those who humble themselves before God and desire to be baptized and come forth with broken hearts and contrite spirits, the new and everlasting covenant of a broken heart and contrite spirit and witness before the church that they have truly repented of all their sins and are willing to take upon them the name of Jesus Christ, having a determination to serve him to the end and truly manifest by their works that they have received of the spirit of Christ unto the remission of their sins shall be received by baptism into his church. Didn't say anything in there about except Joseph Smith as a prophet, seer and revelator. Um, it simply says it's between it's the state of the person between them and God and the person administering it will, you know, if they're in the new covenant, they're offering a broken heart and contrite spirit, they will be able to receive by the spirit to know from the Lord, should I baptize this person? And speaking uh, from experience, uh, I know that that's a true principle. So, People are to be humble. They're to enter the new covenant. They're to witness before the Lord and before others who comprise the church, um, whether organized or, you know, heavenly. We won't get into that right now. But, um, you know, witness before the church. They've truly repented of all their sins. These are the... These are the ways that we can know. And in the discourse on the doctrine of Christ, this is another category where the Lord, the Lord is giving us the, the standards for those who can be baptized. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, I know that if ye shall follow the Son, and this is Nephi speaking, with full purpose of heart, acting no hypocrisy and no deception before God, but with real intent, repenting of your sins, witnessing unto the Father that you're willing to take upon you the name of Christ by baptism, yea, by following your Lord and your Savior down into the water, according to his word, behold, then shall you receive the Holy Ghost. 
Yea, then cometh the baptism of fire and of the Holy Ghost. And then can ye speak with the tongue of angels and shout praises unto the Holy One of Israel. So right here, just to illustrate, anybody can lie to somebody interviewing them or even a person baptizing them and say, yes, I have repented of all my sins. Yes, I believe in Jesus Christ. Um, yes, I enter the new and everlasting covenant. And being imperfect beings, uh, we might be deceived if we're standing in that interrogatory position where we're asking the Lord, you know, is, is this person ready? We might, we might miss something, but the Lord doesn't miss anything. And so they may enter the waters of baptism under false precepts, but they will not receive the baptism of fire and of the Holy Ghost. And they will remain, to paraphrase Joseph Smith, as a bag of sand having not the other half. So as we constantly say in the church that a, a covenant is made up of two promises or two oaths, there's two sides to it. There's our side and there's the Lord's side. And even is it with the full baptism, our side or that which we can enact is the water baptism we can of our own power and volition go down into the water with somebody who has authority and be immersed in the water and come up out of the water. We can choose to do that and of our own power, make that happen. But we cannot of our own power, our own will make the baptism of fire and of the Holy ghost happen. That is the Lord's half. And that is the Lord's offering. Our offering is a broken heart and a contrite spirit, which is witnessed by the water baptism. And his offering is the baptism of fire and of the Holy Ghost, by which we are adopted son or daughter of Jesus Christ. We are redeemed and we become part of the kingdom at the base level. Okay. Have you ever committed a serious crime? If so, are you now on probation or, or parole? You know, have you ever participated in an abortion? Have you ever committed a homosexual transgression? These are things that, I mean, maybe if the spirit directs it. However, I, I consider based on the other, the other excerpts that we've read, from Mosiah, 2 Nephi 31, and Doctrine and Covenants 20, that probing into specifics does not, uh, does not necessarily need to happen. If, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll just leave that at that. You've been taught that membership in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints includes living gospel standards. What do you understand about them, about the following standards? Are you willing to obey them? So these, these kind of get in the gray area, you know, somebody's, somebody's 
covenant between between them and the Lord. Um, it's between them and the Lord. If if they're holding something back, and they do not live up to the covenant of a broken heart and contrite spirit, that is between them and the Lord. And it's not to me to say, um, you know, you, it's only for me to ask the Lord, Heavenly Father, do you give sanction that I baptize this individual? Um, their life and their weakness and their sins are between them and you. But at this time, are you, uh, do you give me permission to do that? Sometimes he'll say no. Sometimes he'll say yes. Um, if he says no, maybe, you know, in a loving way, ask the, you know, tell the person, you know what? I received a no. Um, you know, is there anything that I can help you with to help you get to that point? That's, I feel like that's kind of the, the extent of that. Um, and when you're baptized, you covenant with God that you're willing to take upon yourself the name of Christ and keep his commandments throughout your life. Are you ready to make this covenant and strive to be faithful to it? I, I agree with that one. That one's in the other scriptures. Um, so right here we have partial truth in my opinion and partial falsehood, partial creed, partial uh, creation of man. All right. Temple recommend questions. 15 questions to allow or disallow entrance into an LDS temple. Okay. Do you have faith in and testimony of God, the eternal father, his son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy ghost? Good. Do you have a testimony of the atonement of Jesus Christ and his role as your savior and redeemer? Also good. Do you have a testimony of the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ? You know, perhaps this gets into the gray area where are we guiding somebody's gaze, uh, somebody's focus onto the church or a person? Um, same thing with this. Do you sustain the president of the church of Jesus Christ? Uh, the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as a prophet, seer and revelator, and as the only person on earth authorized to, uh, to exercise all priesthood keys. This is directly to, uh, you know, focusing on a mortal. Um, also with the follow-ups. It's taking our focus off of Jesus Christ and men even true prophets, seers, and revelators do not point people to them. They point people to Jesus Christ. The Lord has said that all things are to be done in cleanliness before him. Do you strive for moral cleanliness in your thoughts and behavior? Do you obey the law of chastity? Again, gray area. Um, it's as simple as have you repented of your sins and do you consider yourself, uh, have you gone to the Lord and received permission to be baptized? 
And, and has the Lord told you that you're ready to enter into that covenant um, or witness entering into that covenant by entering the waters of baptism? That, you know, barring some exceptions that uh, I'd be willing to hear should be the only question. Um, do you follow the teachings of the church of Jesus Christ in your private and public behavior with members of your, your family and others? Again, it's, it's leading to the church. It's leading to the organization and the institution instead of Jesus Christ himself. Do you support or promote any teachings, practices, or doctrine contrary to those of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? Another example of pointing to the institution. Do you strive to keep the Sabbath day holy, both at home and at church, attend your meetings, prepare for and worthily partake of the sacrament, and live your life in harmony with the laws and commandments of the gospel? These go to, are you willing to repent? Are you willing to live the new covenant of a broken heart and contrite spirit, whatever that looks like for you, uh, between you and the Lord? You strive to be honest in all you do. Same thing as I just said. You full tithe payer, none of my business between you and the Lord. Um, do you obey and understand the word of wisdom? Uh, word of wisdom is not a commandment. That's another topic. Do you have fi any financial or other obligations to a former spouse or to children? This goes into, have you repented of your sins? Do you take care of the things that God has allotted you? <clears throat> do you keep covenants you made in the temple, including wearing the temple garment as instructed in the endowment? Somebody can lie about this. Anybody can lie about this. Anybody can lie about these answers, uh, serious sins, you know, consider yourself worthy. Um, people do it every day, believe it or not. And contrary to one of our traditions, um, you know, bishops, stake presidents, members of those presidencies, uh, don't have a patent gift of discernment just placed on them when, uh, <laughs> when they're, when they're placed in that position or set apart. The gift of discernment is a spiritual gift that like any other thing, it requires going to the Lord and receiving it. So any of these things, I want to bring up this, um, you know, uh, Two things right here, particularly Second Nephi forty one. Uh, sorry, yeah, Second Nephi nine forty one. Oh, then behold, my uh, sorry. Oh, then my beloved brethren, come unto the Lord the Holy one. Remember that his paths are righteous. Behold, the way for man is narrow, but it lieth in a straight course before him. And the keeper of the gate is the Holy one of Israel. And he employeth no servant there for there is none other way. And there is none other way, save it be by the gate for he cannot be deceived for the Lord God is his name. Now for context, that does not mean that the Lord does not employ servants. 
What it means is that nobody other than the Lord makes the decision that a person is able and ready to enter the gate of the baptism of fire and of the Holy Ghost. No man can decide, I'm going to give this person the baptism of fire and of the Holy Ghost. I'm going to lay my hands on this person and I'm going to do it. That's not how it works. Jesus Christ is the one, well, initially, Heavenly Father is the one who makes that decision. Jesus Christ pleads one's case before Father and then receives permission from Father that, um, that they may receive it. Let me look back here. Um, you know, there are places I'm thinking, uh, should be here. We'll get to it a little bit later in the discussion, but there are places in the scriptures where it says the father gives the baptism of fire and Holy ghost. There are places where it says the son gives the baptism of fire and Holy ghost. And both are correct because they are one. They are working for our eternal life and exaltation um, and, uh, and immortality. And they have a vested interest in getting us to, to be redeemed and to be saved. And so it is both of their decision, both Christ pleading for us, wanting us before the Father, and Father giving permission that enough has been, um, enough testing has come about that that Jesus Christ is then allowed to administer the baptism of fire and Holy Ghost, which he does through his servants, because his servants need experience. Jesus Christ does not need the experience administering the baptism of fire and Holy Ghost, but others do. And so he administers that through servants, whether on this side of the veil or the, or, uh, or the other. And this, uh, I pulled this up because, you know, if it be defiled, I will not come unto it. And my glory shall not be there for I will not come on into unholy temples. DNC 97, 17. So again, going back to, to this, you know, none of these questions matter because anybody can lie about them. And, you know, people practice lying and they're really good at it. And so they can go in and just <laughs> say, yeah, scot free. And you, you believe that they're telling the truth because they're so good at lying. So, you know, temple recommend questions, baptismal interview questions. Uh, we as mortals can be deceived. Doesn't matter what our ecclesiastical position is um, within the church, we can still be deceived, and so it, it just makes these these questions moot to an extent. Um, now, should we ask somebody? You know, are you willing to follow Jesus Christ if they're seeking baptism? Have you repented of your sins? Yeah, we should probably do that, and we should ask the Lord, Heavenly Father, do I have your permission? to administer this. And is this person ready? 
to enter into the waters of baptism, signifying the entrance into the new covenant of a broken heart and contrite spirit. Okay, now what else are our creeds? Uh, you know, uh, that could uh, <laughs> that could be a number of different things. Um, I have some off the top of my head that uh, may or may not get to them, but you know, we we have to understand going back to the premise of of what was said to Joseph that. You know, they draw near unto me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And we're going to look at these. These are all parallel scriptures, each from a different era or pertaining to a different people, yet they say the exact same thing. So starting in Isaiah 29... And we have to understand that Isaiah is speaking both in his contemporary time and he is, it's doubling as, as end time metaphor. And we'll see in the Matthew 15 that it also applies in between. So there's multiple layers of this iteration and this application and multiple parties are guilty of it. Wherefore the Lord said... For as much as this people draw near to me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. Therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. So drawing near unto the Lord with our mouth honoring him, removing, you know, one's heart is removed far from him or one's heart is hard. One is not close to the Lord in offering a broken heart and contrite spirit in the new covenant, but they say they do, but the Lord cannot be deceived. That's what he's saying here. And their fear toward me or their administration of their of their religious rights is taught by the precept of men. Jesus said the same thing. Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah or Isaiah, Isaiah prophesy of you saying this people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they, they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. I was answered that I must join none of them, for they were all wrong. The person who addressed me said that all their creeds were an, an abomination in his sight, and tying that into it, that those professors were all corrupt, that they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They teach for doctrines the commandments of men, having a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. And lastly, the close of the book end, 2 Nephi 27, which parallels Isaiah 29. 
for as much as this people draw near unto me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their hearts far from me and their fear toward me is taught by the precepts of men. Therefore, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, yea, a marvelous work and a wonder for the wisdom of their wise and learned shall perish and the understanding of their prudent shall be hid. Now, can we not surmise that the wisdom of the wise and the learned and the understanding of the prudent does not uh, pertain specifically to the precepts of men? It's one right after the other. And the parallels between what needs to happen because the hearts of the people are far from him. Now, the reason why I listed all three of these or all four of these rather is because they pertain to different people and we need to apply it. Isaiah is warning both to the house of Israel of his day and as an end time prophecy. We are in the end times. In Matthew 15, the Lord is warning the Jews of his day. Joseph Smith, the state of the people in the new world who inherited their creeds. And second Nephi, the echoed Isaiah end time prophecy about the Latter-day Gentiles or the Latter-day Saints. Now, each of these pertains to the covenant people or those who were receiving the covenant. Now you might say, well, no, second Nephi is talking about, uh, it's saying the same thing as Joseph Smith history one, but you'll note that, uh, sorry for that accident in Joseph Smith history, he's 14. It's before any of the, uh, it's before any of the work started when the Lord said this to him. Now, when does it pertain to, when is it talking about in second Nephi 27? If you see the framework of these two verses, they come after the Lord is talking about the book of Mormon coming forth. So, the book has come forth. The book is delivered to the people. And after it, the people draw near unto him, unto Christ, unto Father, with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their farts, sorry, their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precepts of men. Well, how could that apply to us? Well, we just spent an entire evening, you know, <laughs> just over an hour and a half, talking about how our beliefs, we have creeds, we are following the pattern. We follow the pattern in the church of setting up parameters and boundaries and guidelines into which members of the church must comply or else they become heretics. They become apostates. If you do not believe this, you can't be 
part of the church anymore. And, and not only that, but it extends outside that. Um, I may or may not share a personal experience from the other day, uh, depending on, <laughs> on how this goes. But uh, suffice it to say, uh, I'm seeing this in real time. All right. There are save two churches only. <clears throat> the reason why I bring this up is because these creeds come from somewhere. And we read earlier in the um, DNC one. 23 passage where those are, where those come from. So let's bring these up here. First, first Nephi 13. Verse five, and the angel said unto me, behold, the formation of a church, which is most abominable above all other churches, which slayeth the saints of God and tortureth them and bindeth them down and yoketh them with a yoke of iron and bringeth them down into captivity. Now, I want to make some parallels to the, the scriptures that we just read uh, from the Old Testament, New Testament, uh, Joseph Smith's day, and the uh, the prophecy about our day that's in both Isaiah 29 and in 2 Nephi 27. So the church of the devil, or the great and abominable church, always does these things. It always sets up creeds. It always sets up divisions. It always devolves into persecution. It always devolves into slaying the saints of God, torturing them, binding them down, yoking them with a yoke of iron, bring them into captivity. Always. If you want to understand the parallels, the Deuteronomists, um, in Lehi's day, were that great and abominable church. And Jeremiah and other prophets were preaching, and then Lehi came and was called by the Lord. And all of them were preaching because of the creeds and abominations of their church in their day, because their church had become corrupted. Their religion had become corrupted. And because they were preaching against it, they were brought into captivity. They were stoned. They were slain. They were driven out. The same happened with the iteration of the church in Jesus Christ's day. He was persecuted. His life was sought after. He was killed. His apostles received the same. Joseph Smith, when setting up the church and calling out the false traditions of his day, he was persecute, persecuted. He was driven out. He was, um, you know, 
ultimately, uh, he lost his life over it. And I am so bold as to say this will happen again. This is happening again. And before the end comes, those who recognize the errors of the church of the chosen people, those who have received the greater light and knowledge, even we as Latter-day Saints, those who recognize, who wake up, even as Lehi and Jesus' apostles and Joseph Smith, there are those who are waking up and preaching these things and their boldness will continue to increase because people need to wake up because destruction, just as in all of the other iterations, um, Lehi's day, we know that happened. Um, 70 AD Jerusalem was destroyed. Um, you know, we're, we're in a similar period. I wouldn't say that everything was destroyed necessarily in after Joseph's day. However, we're in that period where in this generation we're we're going to meet the same demise as a society as Jerusalem did in Lehi's day and after Christ's day. And as the warning voice is sounded, not only will persecution rage, but people will be beaten. They will be tortured, they'll be jailed, and they will be killed. Um, so we need to understand, we need to go to the Lord with a broken heart and contrite spirit and know where we stand, know where we are. Okay, really quickly, I'll just go through these. In... First Nephi 13.5, they slay the saints of God. They torture them, bind them down. We went through that. The desires of the great and abominable church are gold, silver, silks, scarlets, fine twine linen, precious clothing, and harlots. These are all things of the world related to pride and lust. Okay. <clears throat> so the first, the actions all comprise power and dominion. The desires are all things of the world related to pride and lust. The method and goal of the uh, great and abominable church is to take away from the gospel of the lamb, the doctrine of Christ, and the plan of salvation, many of the plain and precious parts and covenants pertaining to it. They pervert the right ways of the Lord and they blind the eyes and harden the hearts of the children of men. And then lastly, it came to pass that I beheld this great and abominable church and I saw the devil that he was the founder of it. So this is what we need to understand and take to the Lord in humility to know if we are guilty of this. If we are guilty of giving into 
creeds, of persecuting others for not believing creeds, of, uh, of desiring these things more than Jesus Christ, and denying the plain and precious parts of the gospel that are in our scriptures because they contradict our outstanding creeds. And we choose to follow our creeds more than the plain and precious parts of the scriptures that we don't understand our scriptures well enough to see without going to the Lord and saying, Father, open my eyes, help me to see. Okay, so what should we believe? What Upon what are we to build? All right, so Christ, I will summarize this. Christ is coming in 3 Nephi 11. And he is bringing, he is restoring the fullness of the gospel to them, which had been lost um, during Nephi, the son of Helaman's day. And this is Nephi, the son of that Nephi. So Jesus Christ is giving them his own, you can call it his own creed or his own doctrine. And if there is any creed to which we must adhere, it is the doctrine of Christ. And it doesn't come from man, but it comes from Jesus Christ. And he laid it down in the scriptures in plainness that we might understand it. He gives them what to say how to administer baptism. And he gives them, and he says, there shall be no disputations among you as there have hitherto been. These disputations, he's not saying, um, you know, you're just being disagreeable. Stop that. He's specifically talking about creeds. He's specifically talking about disagreements as to what the doctrine of Christ is. And, and he's laying it down to lay to rest those disputations by saying, you don't need to argue anymore. I'm giving you what it is. Contention is not of me, but is of the devil, who's the father of contention. Or plug in creeds here. He stirreth up the hearts of men to contend with anger one with another because of their creeds, because of that which they believe and will not let go of in the new covenant of a broken heart and contrite spirit. So he declares his doctrine here. He talks about baptism, baptism of water and receiving the Holy ghost unto him. Will the father bear record of me for he will visit him with fire and with the Holy ghost. And we, receive here verily verily i say unto you this is my doctrine and whoso buildeth upon this buildeth upon my rock and the gates of hell shall not prevail against them and whoso shall declare more or less than this more or less than what he just said of what his doctrine is and establish it for my doctrine the same cometh of evil and is not built upon my rock, 
but he buildeth upon a sandy foundation and the gates of hell stand open to receive such when the floods come and the winds beat upon them. The new covenant. 35, 9, 19 and 20. And ye shall offer up unto me no more the shedding of blood. Yea, your sacrifices and your burnt offerings shall be done away, for I will accept none of your sacrifices and burnt offerings. I will accept not the old covenant, the old sacrifice. And ye shall offer for a sacrifice, a new sacrifice in the new covenant, unto me a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And whoso cometh unto me with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, him will I baptize with fire and with the Holy Ghost. even as the Lamanites, and we understand that is the Lamanites in Helaman 5, which go and read that. That is what a baptism of fire and of the Holy Ghost looks like. Okay, 2 Nephi 31, 21. And now behold, my brethren, this is the way, and there is none other way nor name given under heaven whereby man can be saved in the kingdom of God. And now behold, this is the doctrine of Christ, the only and true doctrine of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, which is one God without end. Amen. And continuing, and now my, bro my beloved brethren, I suppose that ye ponder somewhat in your hearts concerning that which ye should do after ye have entered in by the way. But behold, why do ye ponder these things in your hearts? Do ye not remember that I said unto you, after ye had received the Holy Ghost or entered into the way? You could speak with the tongue of angels. And now how could you speak with the tongue of angels, save it were by the Holy Ghost? How could you do this except you received the Holy Ghost? Angels speak by the power of the Holy Ghost, wherefore they speak the words of Christ. Wherefore I said unto you, feast upon the words of Christ. For behold, the words of Christ will tell you all things what you should do. Wherefore now, after I have spoken these words, if ye cannot understand them, it will be because ye ask not, neither do ye knock. Wherefore, ye are not brought into the light, but must perish in the dark. For behold, again, I say unto you that if ye will enter in by the way and receive the Holy Ghost, it will show unto you all things what ye should do. Now, behold, this is the doctrine of Christ. And there will be no more doctrine given until after he shall manifest unto himself unto you in the flesh. And when he shall manifest himself unto you in the flesh, the things which he shall say unto you shall ye observe to do. Now, he just spoke about the baptism of fire and Holy Ghost and the second comforter in verse 6. So the second comforter is part of the doctrine of Christ because it is the end unto which we endure. There, shall, there will be no more doctrine given until after he shall manifest himself unto you in the flesh. That is the end to which we're enduring. That's the tree at which we end up when, uh, when we follow the iron rod of the word of God, which is feasting upon the words of Christ. The word of God, the words of Christ, they're the same thing. Receiving the words of Christ through revelation by the power of the Holy Ghost, that is the iron rod. Matthew 16, 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? 
And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. That echoes what I brought up in my testimony at the beginning. Um, that which is revealed by the Lord, by the Father, by Jesus Christ, that is that upon which we found our uh, found ourselves. That is the rock. I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock will I build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Going back, the rock. Whoso buildeth upon this, buildeth upon my rock. So the rock upon which we build is all aspects or outpourings from Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ himself. It is his doctrine, which comes from him. It is his words, which come from him. It is revelation, which comes from him. So he is the rock and all those things that we receive, the doctrine of Christ the new and everlasting covenant, living the new covenant, receiving commandments, following commandments. Um, I mean, that is what faith is. That's how we base ourselves on him and uh, how we're not on a sandy foundation. Anything more or less than that is a sandy foundation. And that's what creeds are. Creeds are a sandy foundation. Okay. Whom can we trust? Go through these really quickly. I believe this is my last slide. Okay, DNC 45 verses 56 and 57. Give me a second. And at that day when I shall come in my glory, shall the parable be fulfilled which I spake concerning the ten virgins. For they that are wise and have received the truth. And have not and have taken the Holy Spirit for their guide and have not been deceived. Verily I say unto you, they shall not be hewn down and cast into the fire, but shall abide the day. So those who live by revelation, those who live by the Holy Ghost, those who feast upon the words of Christ, feasting upon the words of Christ following the Holy Ghost, following Revelation, they're all synonyms for the same thing. Okay. DNC 46, 7 through 9. But ye are commanded in all things, all things, to ask of God who giveth liberally, and that which the Spirit testifies unto you, even so I would that ye should do in all holiness of heart, walking uprightly before me, considering the end of your salvation, doing all things with prayer and thanksgiving, that ye may not be seduced by evil spirits or doctrines of devils or the commandments of men or creeds. For some are of men and others of devils. Wherefore, beware lest ye are deceived. And that you may not be deceived, seek ye earnestly the best gifts, or gifts of the Spirit. Always remembering for what they are given, 
For verily I say unto you, they are given for the benefit of those who love me and keep all my commandments or live by revelation or feast upon the words of Christ and him that seeketh so to do. Even those who are imperfect at doing so, seeking to do it. That's key. That all may be benefited that seek or that ask of me and that ask and not for a sign that they may consume it upon their lusts. So seeing an angel, just for the sake of seeing an angel, rather than, Heavenly Father, help me receive the gift of the ministering of angels, that I might be a better tool in your hands. That I might do thy work better than I am doing it right now. Okay, 3520. This clarifies one of our false traditions or one of our creeds. Behold, I am he of whom Moses spake, saying, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be cut off from among the people. So who's the prophet? Jesus Christ is the prophet. Jesus Christ is the prophet who cannot lead us astray. And Jesus Christ is the only prophet who cannot lead us astray. He's the only one. Anyone else? Devils? Men? Nobody in the universe is able to be completely trusted except for God. God is the only one who is incapable of lying to us. So he is the only one whom, sh whom uh, we should implicitly trust. We can heed the words of men and take them to the Lord and receive a witness of him if they speak by the power of the Holy Ghost. But even then, we're still going and letting the Lord be the final word. Behold, I would exhort you that when ye shall read these things, if it be wisdom in God that ye should read them, the account of the Book of Mormon that testifies of the new covenant of a broken heart and contrite spirit, and that um, that teaches the doctrine of Christ. If it be wisdom in God that you shall that you should read them, that you would remember how merciful the Lord hath been unto the children of men from the creation of Adam even down until the time that you shall receive these things and ponder it in your hearts. Ponder our case as mortals. Our case is grave because without Jesus Christ, we're nothing and we have no deliverance. And in that is his mercy manifest in its fullness, that he is reaching out to us from day to day, all of us, by the power of the Holy Ghost, reaching out to us and pleading with us to hear him, to listen to him, to feast upon his words, to follow his commandments, to 
to become as he is. That's what he is trying to do. And that is where mercy comes in because we don't deserve that. None of us deserve that. It doesn't matter what we have uh, done to serve others. It doesn't matter what kind of uh, religious rites we've performed. We do not merit anything. There is no chance except through Jesus Christ. And that is what this means. That you would remember how merciful the Lord hath been unto the children of men from the creation of Adam, even down until the time that you shall receive these things. And when you shall receive these things, I would exhort you that you would ask of God, the eternal father in the name of Christ, if these things are not true, or if the doctrine of Christ is not the true path, or if Jesus Christ is not the only way by which we might be delivered, or if the, New and everlasting covenant is not a broken heart and contrite spirit. And if you shall ask with a sincere heart, with real intent, having faith in Christ, he will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost. And by the power of the Holy Ghost, you may know the truth of all things. Because God can't lie. Jesus Christ cannot lie. The Holy Ghost cannot lie. Okay. So in closing, I want to I want to bear witness of Jesus Christ that he is the only way. I want to bear witness of Jesus Christ that his doctrine is pure, his doctrine is contained in its purity in the Book of Mormon. It can be found with the proper eyes in the Bible both in the Old and New Testaments. It is found in the Doctrine of Covenants. It is found in the Pearl of Great Price. I bear witness that Joseph Smith was and is a true prophet of Jesus Christ, that he is his true servant, even the Davidic servant. And he will shortly return on the scene but if we hold fast and hard to our creeds, to our false traditions, and we do not lay everything at the feet of the Lord in a new, uh, in the new and everlasting covenant, exercising real intent, as it says here, just to show again with a sincere heart, real intent. If we do not do this and give up that which we believe, which is false, we will not recognize him and we will not be delivered by him, but we will be sealed to our own fate of destruction for it is prophesied. And that is why I reach out in doing these lessons and why others do so that we might be delivered so that we might not fall to destruction. And I plead with you to go to the Lord, ask him if what I have spoken tonight is true and follow what the Lord says, not what I say, but what the Lord says, follow what the Lord guides you to do. 
and let go of all of your pride and say, Heavenly Father, I just want to do what's right. I want to let go of all of those things that hold me back from your presence. And even if it's painful, I want you to show me and help me let go of that which is false and that which is untrue because it keeps me from thee. And I want to be delivered. Please show me where I am in error so that I might be clasped in the arms of Jesus. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.